China is really the yin to our yang. We could live our lives the China way, or we could live our lives the freedom way. Some people may say, I'd rather live like people in China, where we're not wasting time on elections or talking politics, but people who are reasonably intelligent uh, are put forward by the party, organize things, and uh, make sure that uh, people's lives keep getting better. On the other hand, if you're someone who values choice, creativity, freedom, friendships across all sorts of barriers, if you're someone who um, values opportunity against conformity, say, then you're going to think, what kind of a system is it that will uh, support those values? Welcome to the New Flesh Podcast, the podcast you deserve. My name is Ricky Allpike, and joining me as always is Jonathan Astro. What's going on? Well, I, I took a breath because I thought I was gonna I was gonna say the thing, but you said it. So <laughs> that's what's going Beach on. Beat you to it. Beat you to <laughs> it. Beat <laughs> it. Uh, well, uh, I'm very excited about today's uh, interview. Uh, uh, are we, we talking China? China. We are talking about China, and um, we're going to uh, be delving more into this topic for for various reasons. But I think just a couple of things. I thought it's worth explaining uh, just quickly to our listeners because some people have said, like you know, who who do listen are like, so what's the deal? Are you just like an interview show now? I mean, I love it, but what's going on? And like, and so I th- I just thought we, we should explain that basically. Uh, we at the, we're going to try and and get it. Uh, one interview every second week uh, at the moment. Uh, so you know, if you if you just love hearing me and Ricky, if you can't get enough <laughs> of what we say, <laughs> then you get that back, right? Mm. So that that that's coming. But uh, we we we've you know we've actually a bit overwhelmed by by the by the response of of these wonderful guests, aren't, aren't you? Like they're just they're so generous and willing to talk. They are. They are, yeah, and that's that's such an exciting thing is to be able to bring uh, experts in and 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 really delve in uh, with more detail to a lot of the topics that that we cover uh, just as a duo regularly. So uh, it's great to have someone uh, to talk about China today because we don't know enough, and I don't think the West knows enough, and we need to talk about China. Absolutely. So just one little bit of housekeeping. I just thought it was worth saying that before we talk to to Rowan that. In the interview, uh, we're going to use the words China, Chinese people, and the CCP. Sometimes these words will be stand-ins for uh, something else, <laughs> uh, because the all the all three of these uh, elements share a complex and intertwined relationship. So, you know, we're going to specify where we can, but we're just going to ask for a charitable reading of the discussion. And I mean, and look, our listeners are right onto this. I'm mainly probably talking to some out. Let's just say the Vox people who are eventually going to listen to this to to you know uh, be part of our war crimes like tribunal. Uh, uh, I just want to remind those those people that um, one of the weapons of the Chinese Communist Party is to label all criticism that they get, any and all. Like you could say to some of these party members, you could say, "Oh, you know, um, do you, sorry, you borrowed my sharpener last week. Do you, do you could you be able to give it back?" And they they probably say, um, "This is just what I expected. The racist West again." Wanting my sharpener. Anyway, that's I just wanted to bring everyone's attention to that. And uh, your Chinese friend and neighbor is a great guy, um, I'm sure. Yes, we're not any criticism we, we level at, at 
China, in inverted commas, is the CCP, you know, yeah. Communist Party of China. So Great. bear that in mind when you listen to our interview today with, uh, with Rowan Kallick. On with the show. Rowan Kallick, OBE, is an award-winning journalist and author. He was the Asia-Pacific editor for the Australian Financial Review, senior editor with Time magazine from 1990-1992. He worked for The Australian from 2006 to 2018, twice serving as China correspondent in Beijing and also Asia-Pacific editor. Rowan is a board member of the National Foundation for Australia-China Relations, fellow of the Australian Institute of International Affairs and an industry fellow at Griffiths University Asia Institute, He's written three books, published in both English and Chinese, including Comrades and Capitalists, Hong Kong Since the Handover, and Party Time, Who Runs China and How. Rowan, thanks for being with us today. Thanks. Very good to be with you and all listeners. That's quite a wrap there, Rowan. <laughs> I don't know whether we have time for the rest of the podcast now. but. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, Rowan, we're going to wade into the deep end with the inner workings of the Chinese Communist Party shortly, but we have a serious matter to discuss is TikTok designed to keep us gawking at twerking women and cats while President Xi takes over? <laughs> it is designed for only for one thing, <laughs> to make money for the two uh, uh, Beijing-based inventors who were very smart people and thought that they found something different, which is quite amazing, really. I mean, who could imagine there's something new to be uh, done not just in content, but in platform terms, but they've done it. Well, I would say that it's the stickiest uh, app I've ever encountered. So in terms of an absolute time sink, a weapon of mass distraction. <laughs> so they pulled it off. Um, well. I'm glad I never signed up for TikTok. Maybe you will now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, maybe I will. Uh, well, Rowan, can you can you tell us a little bit maybe about the, the personal connection you have with China and, and, and what drew you to the region? Yeah, I was uh, working in Papua New Guinea. I worked in Papua New Guinea for um, 11 years and um, I was running locally owned publishing group, newspapers, magazines, printing and so on. And um, I went there from England and where I grew up. And uh, I uh, got annual uh, leave back in to England, and I would fly from Moresby to Hong Kong. And uh, I had a pal who trained with me as a journalist in in England who who was working in Hong Kong. So I would stay him with him and his family. And uh, through uh, I often spend a week there doing things. And I was writing for the Far Eastern Economic Review, uh, a fabled magazine that sadly is no more, uh, but was very influential uh, out of Hong Kong. And we had a printer, a color printer, uh, who did stuff for us in Hong Kong. So I would, I would visit them and uh, I would visit uh, the Far Eastern Economic Review and sort of bow my uh, head in front of the illustrious Richard Hughes, the uh, the great Australian, kind of uh, the greatest Australian journalist who's covered Asia in many in many ways in uh, the post-war decades. And um, so I just was loving it. I just uh, fell for uh, Chinese culture, Hong Kong people, their individualism, their sense of humour. 
and uh, I wanted more. And then when uh, uh, when I was working for the Financial Review and I'd been offered a, a job somewhere else and uh, I said I was leaving, the then editor-in-chief said, what do you want to stay? And I said, I want to be in Hong Kong for to cover the uh, handover to China. And so that's what I did. I went to uh, Hong Kong for in 1996 for four years. And so that was that really settled it. I, I was sort of uh, fell for Chinese culture. And it, well, it's interesting because I'm now, and for Chinese people, and uh, I'm actually preparing, as I speak now, for a, a, a talk I'm doing for the Ramsey Foundation, which will be on uh, the, uh, the how the party ate uh, China, how it's consumed Chinese subsumed Chinese culture. So it's uh, it's a, been a sad thing to watch. But China still exists. Chinese culture and people still very alive. Uh, and I still find that fascinating. The most individualistic people in the world. Um, they're not people who bang drums together like at the opening of Olympic Games. These are very different types of people. But at the moment, everything's has a huge overlay of party compliance. I do get the sense, and we're so early in our, in our uh, uh, inquiry here, but I, I get the sense that um, there's a lot of people, you know, dr you're drawn to China and East Asia and, and the culture and this history. And it's sort of a bit like this really great band that has just got this um, very recent uh, overpowering lead singer. And you're trying, you're trying to, so you, you, you see the band and you're like, well, you know, you're trying to convince everyone that no, indeed, it, they were really good and they still are really good. We just, you know, maybe got to rethink some, some of the, some of the lineup. Yeah, kind of. It's a nice, uh, yeah, it's kind of a nice metaphor, but actually <laughs> it's bigger than that. Unfortunately, right. this particular band I think there's something wrong with the whole music is flawed, not just the lead singer. And so Xi Jinping is the, uh, Xi, Xi Jinping has certainly changed things immensely and intensified hugely the party's uh, ambition and capacity for pervasive control and its uh, it, its passion for um, ensuring that the world become safe for the party. Hmm. But he is a party player, and uh, it's this particular party that is proving uh, uh, very uh, adept at adapting, at controlling, and so on. Previous Chinese dynasties have been swallowed up inside China. So we've had invasions by you know, people like the Mongolians, the Yuan dynasty, and the Manchus, the Qing dynasty, and, and others before. And they have kind of become more Chinese than the Chinese. But in this case, we've got uh, a, a dynasty that's emerged from, uh, you know, odd foster parents, Karl Marx, you know, Vladimir Lenin and uh, Joseph Stalin and so on. And uh, um, they, they have not been subsumed so easily by China. They seek to wrap themselves around everything that is China, all Chinese people, all Chinese history, everything. They want, they, they, own, they own that. And uh, 
you know, it's very hard to get uh, to pull it apart. Much harder than just sacking the lead singer. <laughs> Thank you for running with that, Rowan. I, I have heard uh, the phrase uh, socialism with, with, with Chinese characteristics, which sounds uh, a little bit what, what you're talking about there. C could you explain that, perhaps, yeah, what, so what that means? Xi Jinping's uh, thought, which has now become part of the, uh, uh, of the constitution of the party, is... Uh, on socialism with Chinese characteristics for a new era. Actually, the new era is probably more important than the, the other bits of it. There are, there are now many centers established in Chinese universities and elsewhere, some overseas, unbelievably, but it is the case, uh, to study Xi Jinping thought. And the thought is, of course, that uh, the idea of socialism has been uh, adapted very successfully by the party to fit Chinese circumstances. And so uh, that is the explanation for um, someone reading Das Kapital and saying, well, this doesn't really, you know, what Marx had in mind doesn't really resemble what I see in China today. Well, that's the Chinese characteristic can be used to e explain that. And an um, immense amount of effort goes into these kind of the theoretical, uh, I would say, contortions, but it's, uh, it's a whole world of its own. Xi Jinping has published much more than his predecessors in ideological and theoretical terms. And uh, Chu Xie, the, uh, the theoretical journal of the party, is something that... Uh, people who uh, look at what's happening in party have in China have to have to study and look at because constantly new things coming in you know claims to have invented a whole new human civilization for example the claims keep getting greater and uh, attempts are made to make them more systematic but it's it's very important you know Xi Jinping is interested really in uh, in the uh, the history of the party, making sure that history is correct. So um, historical nihilism—it sounds like a, you know, something you can take or take it or leave it. But for him, that is a, uh, a seminal sin. And uh, uh, theory of the party is another uh, subject which really, really preoccupies him. And the third thing I think that really interests him is education, making sure that uh, from kindergarten on to uh, postgrad, everyone has, who's teaching, everyone who's studying, has to be consonant with, uh, with the goals of the party. So those are the three things that interest, interest to him, you know, history, ideology, education, and... Uh, so socialism with Chinese characteristics, everyone's looking at this. What does it mean? What does it mean for me and my life? You know, not dissimilar in some ways to what might have been seen in uh, Swiss cantons in the um, 16th century with the emergence of uh, Anabaptist 
movements uh, obsessed by their understanding of Christianity in the early days of the Reformation and Puritanism. And by no coincidence, I would say she is a Puritan, a Puritan communist. So one thing I noticed, I saw happening before my eyes when I was living in Beijing the second time was little noodle bars and florist shops and all, things like that, all being knocked down. It, uh, which neared the centre of the city, public servants being sent uh, to a new sort of satellite city, uh, rather like Parramatta out of Sydney, uh, way to the east. And um, now an, a new metropolis being, Shong'an, being built over, over 100 kilometres to the south uh, southwest in the sort of trackless plains of Herbei. And there the aim is uh, corp uh, corporations, including state-owned corporations, research will, be, will go there and so on, leaving the city pure for the party. So just as when the Qing, when the Manchus conquered, they took the centre of the city and Manchu uh, earls and dukes and so on, carved up bits of it and lived in this kind of estates uh, that filled the centre of the city. So now we see the party itself purging, uh, pur purging the city of uh, distractions like florists or <laughs> noodle bars. And uh, instead, it's a serious-minded place for serious-minded party players. So that's that's what we have. Well, we'd like to step through some in detail uh, the inner workings of the party, particularly taken from your book, Party Time, and perhaps some of the theory behind it. But but first, I think perhaps we should step back uh, and just situate ourselves a bit. So as geriatric millennials, uh, we were sort of brought up with this notion that China was drifting slowly towards some kind of liberal democratic model, um, you know, Paul, Paul Keating's sort of pivot to Asia or Fukuyama's uh, end of history. Now, uh, we sort of were, were, this was just to us as as in our formative years, a, a foregone conclusion. That was how we were taught. Now, I think before we look forward uh, at the end of our talk, perhaps it's worth just quickly discussing how we in the West or whatever standing you'd like to use there, got it so badly wrong. And furthermore, how long has they, China, known that we were wrong? <laughs> you know I what think, I mean? yeah, I th well, people uh, kept quiet. <laughs> if, I, if I saw benefit from uh, Westerners choosing to invest more, to uh, um, give us the benefit of the doubt, to uh, uh, help foster our modernisation, uh, I think it's entirely rational that the party did that, kept quiet. And uh, in return, they received what they needed, really fuel for that modernization. And exactly as you're saying, the, um, and there's, there's a uh, terrific book being, uh, that was written maybe 14 or 15 years ago by James Mann uh, called The China Fantasy, in which he called out what you're saying. And it's taken a long time for people to catch up with this. Uh, but their thought was, if a place is uh, modern, it's Western. You know, hey, you really go to uh, Japan, say. It, it, it shouldn't have been hard to think, to think through this. A place with, with a skyscraper doesn't necessarily mean that people think the same way that someone in Manhattan thinks. You know, it's just uh, crazy. And I think people start to think, yes, China's 
and China, Chinese people just like us. Well, of course, in many ways they are. You know, they're people who want to succeed personally. They want they want to fulfil themselves. They want good things for their families and so on. Of course, there's there's common there is a common humanity, um, uh, but the way the way that uh, society is organised is not going to be uh, marching in step with how the West organises itself. So uh, when people started to drive their own cars in China, for goodness sake, people said, that's absolutely amazing. And so many stories are written. Uh, and I've been guilty of doing some of that myself. I have to say, oh, you know, now more people are driving cars in China, let's say, than in the United States. Well, let's all celebrate. They're, you know, Chinese people are just... Just look at those road movies in America, you know, E.T. Rider. That's just, uh, you know, just like the average Chinese aspires to this. Yes. No, <laughs> absolutely not. <laughs> and, uh, and so this, that was a very big, uh, a very big and self-centered mistake. People weren't paying attention. And frankly, people still aren't paying attention. They're still not actually looking at what happens on the ground in China. They, the information is available. You have to um, pay attention, take care, listen and learn. But people just want to spout off often. So lots of people can, will talk to you about um, uh, how Trump sees control of the Republican Party, for example. And uh, every other taxi driver in every city in Australia can give a theory about that. But if you start to talk uh, about how China is organized or, um, you know, uh, what legitimacy does uh, Xi Jinping have as uh, general secretary of the party? How does that emerge? How, you know, there's no elections in China. So how does he legitimize his rule? Questions like this. People are just bereft. And so we haven't paid attention. People have, uh, and China's been very uh, adept at uh, flying people in on the red carpet, uh, getting a fantastic reception. You know, so politicians, former politicians, business leaders, uh, artists have gone to China. They've been uh, been greeted by people uh, who speak very good English. And they go to a lovely hotel and uh, they have banquets, lots of toasting, a lot of ganmei going on. And uh, that, well, it was until recently, uh, Xi Jinping is not a big advocate of ganmeiing. Uh, and, um, and then they come back. And the most important thing is not what they do in China, but what they do. And they come back, which is to say, China is just like us, you know, and uh, let's pile in and, uh, and so on. And, and for many people, of course, and China has in fact changed. It no longer really wants that. It no longer really particularly wants foreigners or foreigners to go there. Very few foreigners, in fact, in China today. COVID has accelerated that, but this is a trend already in place. So uh, Beijing is a far more uh, homogenous city, say, than uh, even uh, than than Osaka or Seoul or you know you name it, um, so things have changed now, and people people are, are only just starting to pay attention. And these are the same people in many cases who do as you say and thought, oh, you know, there's a skyscraper, you know, 
I feel I feel comfortable here because everyone's thinking like us. Mm. Well, it's so great to have you uh, to chat about all this, Ron, because I feel like our generation uh, knows very little about China and the Chinese Communist Party. And I think like the online space is just completely dominated by culture war issues at the moment. And I feel like we need a bit of a wake up call. So uh, my next question, I, I just I'd like to know what are the key aims of the Chinese Communist Party and, and what is its structure? So the, the, the party's key aim is to remain in power. This is really a, a strange one. Um, so it's uh, in order to achieve that, it aims to be more pervasive. And so the tech tools that it's lined up in recent years of surveillance and control have really made that task much easier and huge investment. And many people now know that uh, that uh, that. that uh, Beijing spends more money on uh, domestic security than it does on its increasingly vast um, uh, international uh, defences. So the People's Liberation Army receives less money for its uh, Navy, Army, uh, Air Force, missile defence and so on than, than China spends on domestic security. Vast numbers of net police checking on people's emails, what's being said, and so on. And uh, Westerners find it hard to understand just how, um, how successfully pervasive things are. When, when you tell people, no, you can't actually uh, go to Google, you can't go to Facebook, uh, and so on, they seem to think this isn't true or this, oh, I can just click on something. You can still buy of course, subscribe to virtual private network. That is actually uh, illegal in China, not often prosecuted, but uh, that's the only way way around that. You, you can do it. But if you're a visitor, you're unlikely to buy a VPN just, just to do this. So that kind of the extent of the pervasiveness and uh, the way that the party seeks to control all public occasions. So when there's these people will see on TV these vast parades with uh, missiles or whatever, or there's uh, an, a big. Um, I, I was in Tiananmen Square when the uh, Olympic torch was brought uh, into the arena um, on on its last legs, and the the square was had about. 15,000 people there. It was just before dawn. All of us were removed from the square and replaced by party, bust-in party members. And so on TV, everyone saw lots of people wearing identical T-shirts and so on, waving flags. Some of the flags, by the way, said Coca-Cola uh, and uh, a major sponsor. And, uh, <laughs> and um, people find it hard to believe that you know, those parades we see, there's not one human, no, not one random human being ever allowed to watch it. Mm, Completely right. not. So the extent of control is absolutely stupendous. Uh, and if you've got a phone now, uh, sorry, everyone has to have a smartphone, really. And if you want to travel, uh, this is a, 
a COVID overlay that's happened. If you want to go anywhere, even outside your apartment building, because there's security guards and so you want to use a bus or train or anything, or you go into any retail or other venue, you have to show this. It has to have the right clearance, has to be green. If there's, uh, if there is any conditionality, if you've gone to a city, even as big as Beijing with 15 million people and one person somewhere else has got COVID, there'll be conditionality on it. And um, very easy, people can be stopped from even leaving their own apartment complex because that green can be turned to red immediately. And of course, where you go is easily traced because you go from here to here. And uh, facial rec recognition technology now has so developed that people wearing masks are still identified by facial recognition technology. Mm. Pretty Fair amazing. Now, yeah. how does the party run? Uh, there are 94.5 million members. If you want to have any position of responsibility uh, in China, you have to be a party member. And so uh, there are more people seeking to be members than, than, uh, than are allowed into the party. Uh, you pay us a sub, and uh, but you have to do self-criticism. You have to uh, give loads of information, of course, before you, in your application um, about your family background. You have to have a good family background before you be accepted and so on. People who join, uh, us, the party six people who are precociously uh, bright, uh, who do well educationally, and it also often looks for people who've got a family a, a family history of party membership. That's probably the quickest and easiest acceptance for, for uh, that you have in your branch is your parents uh, are members, and the, you go to meetings uh, where the party secretary will tell you things, and you're expected to um, uh, read a lot of very dull information. Friends of mine who are members say the main characteristic of being a party member is very boring, but you have to go through it if you want to be uh, successful. It seems like that, 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 sorry to cut you off, it seems like that is the genius of the party is they're hiding behind uh, seeming very boring like you know what i mean they use uh, boredom or these this these dull the, their dullness to hide these these you know coercive measures or what's actually going on you know what i mean yes yeah, so the ordinary party members accountability in china works only um from the uh uh bottom up not the top down so um xi jinping is accountable really to no one, but the next layer of like his fellow members of the Politburo Standing Committee are kind of accountable to him. Then the full Politburo is accountable to them, which is elected, that's 20 members, elected from the Central Committee of the party, uh, which is about 300-something members with 200-something alternates, and they elect the Politburo. They elect the Politburo Standing Committee of seven people Seven men at the moment. Never one, not one woman has ever been elected in 101 years, 102 years, to the um, uh, Politburo Standing Committee of the party. So always, always males. 
Well, they just they just need to read Cheryl Cheryl Sandberg's book about leaning leaning in, and then I'm sure <laughs> it'll all become a reality. I yes, that's possible, <laughs> but not, not likely. And uh, and so the uh, so then it goes down and down and down. So accountability is always if I'm you know I'm an ordinary person, ordinary. Chinese person, I'm accountable to someone else, but no one's accountable to me, really. And, and so it happens. You don't really elect people. People are chosen for your endorsement. Uh, and then often people are representing, let's say, a branch of the uh, party who people in that branch really don't know, and, and so on. We don't really know, for example, how the there's... So that's the, the party. And the party um, structure is alongside. So you have a whole party structure and then you have the government structure. At every level, the government is subservient to the party. So the party decides policy and the government implements it. So you have, for example, every government department uh, has party branches at different levels right up to the top. Um, and they set the policy and then the people who are public servants, they follow party direction. And that's what they're there to do. How this is paid for is a mystery, really. Uh, the cost of the party, the expense of that imposition of the party on China is un incalculable, but it is stupendous, of course. And um, party members, senior ones particularly, have been able at the same time to extract massive amounts at every level, taxing uh, and uh, receiving payments. Now, she, is, uh, she came to power on the back of a, um, a kind of program, in a way, of anti-corruption. The party was concerned that lacking the legitimacy of an election, uh, we need to be legitimate because people respect us, the, the mass of the people uh, feel their, that their lives are improving because of what we're helping them to do or allowing them to do and so on. But there was a sense that, uh, and I could see this on the streets of Beijing where uh, black Audis, official cars going past, people would, would actually uh, make rude remarks about those cars because they these are cadres officials these are people who are uh, you know living high on the hog and so on at our expense so xi jinping had this anti-corruption campaign and so he's purged a load of people at all levels in the party when we say purged wrong what, what do we mean oh so uh so uh, there's a process called Chuanghui, which is uh, of inquisition. So someone is charged with being, uh, someone's taken in for questioning by the party's central disciplinary, uh, uh, central commission for disciplinary inspection, and uh, uh, which can hold people in a place no one knows and then uh, interrogate them for uh, a period not I may be specific, I can't remember, but how they're interrogated is pretty open. And uh, then the, uh, the, the person confesses to whatever they're being charged with. Then that person is uh, 
Well, if it's serious, they're, they're, they're expelled from the party. They may be suspended from the party if it's not that serious. Uh, but if they're expelled from the party, then, then they're exposed to uh, uh, the more normal legal process, which uh, means they're charged with corruption or uh, stealing state secrets, anything really. And then um, uh, they can be jailed, uh, one or two people executed, not so many these days, actually. Um, and their families, often they're, they're, they're told, if you... Uh, confess, or if you commit suicide, your family will not suffer so much. So a lot of suicides involved in this, and uh, and so we've seen uh, purging, very popular <clears throat> because people know there's corruption, but it's such a um, uh, the process is not transparent at all, uh, and there's no independent legal. Uh, establishment in China because the courts are all uh, run by the political and legal uh, affairs commissions of the party. And uh, so, so it kind of works in that people are happy to see corrupt people and there's TV series on uh, who are these corrupt people, what terrible things, and they're shown dragged out of their homes and large packages said to contain vast amounts of renminbi and so on and gold ornaments, whatever. Um, but of course, a lot of people know these people and uh, they, you know, their friends and families have seen them um, and disappear. Essentially, whatever they've done, disloyalty is at the core of it. So there's a sense that these people haven't failed to own up to the fact that she is now the incontrovertible kingpin and you must pay attention to what he says and to uh, be uh, your thoughts must be consonant with his with the thought of xi jinping on socialism and chinese characteristics for this new era that he runs so that's kind of um been been pretty important a lot of people a lot of noses out of joint, as you can imagine, because of this, uh, but no one's saying anything, because if they do, that will be, uh, that will be observed. Um, anything you, you do on your phone, of course, is going to be uh, observed. So people hold meetings in, you know, in person if they can, but in the COVID era, they, even that's become uh, quite difficult. So control has become... Uh, easier through COVID era, so the, uh, so the parties imposed zero COVID. It's declared a people's war on COVID and declared that uh, she, a new title in to some extent, the people's leader of the people's war against COVID. So so this has all worked quite well for she, and particularly in this year, we're heading to a, a five yearly National Party Congress in November, and uh, at that. She will be up for uh, re-election as general secretary of the party. Now, co by convention, he should be standing down, down, but he won't. He'll stand again. And because there's no real uh, successor being lined up, really what that means is, well, they'll have to, if, if they'll have to kind of think of lining up a successor and getting them in training for five years' time, if they don't, if they do that, then she will have a further five years, so he'll have 10 years. Um, but if they don't line a successor up, 
he's going to stay for more than 10 years. So he'll, in my view, we'll see in the, the Congress, he'll be there for another 10 years. And uh, just while we're on that, Rowan, you mentioned this personality cult. We'll come back to the party in a second of, of President Xi. You said you've said in your uh, along the way that he potentially has maybe two decades up his sleeve, uh, or you know, with a few factors to to bring in there. But how does it really end for someone like him? I mean, what what could happen in terms of transfer of power realistically? Because I mean, I have a feeling that ex leaders in China don't get to play golf and set up their presidential library. No, it's very interesting that um, um, from all the information I have. I believe that n- that no member of the Politburo, once retired, has ever been allowed to leave China, <laughs> and there's quite a lot of those people now. No Jimmy, no Jimmy Carter like experience for you. It's just like yeah, just, that's you're... right. You're not going on some farewell tour or being invited to you know um, hold a you know. A, a, summer series of lectures mm. at Stanford University or something. Uh, and where you live is chosen by the party. So people, in fact, even people in power, let alone people who've retired, people in power, um, even, even the premier, I happen to know, like the premier's wife, who can visit her? Well, that's kind of determined to an extent by what uh, uh, the people that uh, the General, I can't, I, I can't be sure which part of the, of the uh, uh, party chooses who, who runs the security at that level. But they, they vet everyone who visits and whatever you do. So she will have to, Li Keqiang's wife, very highly educated woman, you know, she can't just say to friends, come round and see me at this time. This has to be a process uh, of asking approvals and so on. So once you're, the, the party doesn't just, isn't just, oh, it's open slather at the top. It's party time for um, uh, for the people in Zhongnanhai, which is the party headquarters. They're having a wild time. Actually, there are huge constraints even for them. And that's it. Once, you, once you're in, you, you, you don't, get to do very much. So Zhu Rongji, widely uh, respected former premier, and uh, Paul Keating wanted to see him. And uh, it was quite an effort. Uh, I know that the, the our then ambassador, Jeff Raby, did, did sterling work and managed to arrange that meeting. But, it, and then, but uh, Zhu was kind of constrained in what he could say. Or, the, the, you know, he could talk about... Uh, his uh, desire to become a, a master at playing a traditional uh, Chinese instrument, I think the Erhu, and uh, you know, not much more. Mm. So this is a this is a very uh, it's a very odd world. And when those people reach those high positions, when they travel around China, even while they're in the positions, and when they've retired, you don't, uh, for example, go on a plane that. Where, uh, that's open to the public. You don't go in public transport. You don't stay in a hotel with other people. There are special guest houses. There's special this and special that. And the food you eat is grown separately. So mm. there are special farms to ensure uh, uh, s- s- food that's organically grown that's uh, available for leaders. So it's a very strange setup. So, Rowan, does that mean she 
does not ever want to give up power? Like he'd want to continue on until he dies? Is that? He, I think ideally he would. Now his predecessors, Hu Jintao and then before him, Jiang Zemin, kind of, um, they kind of set in place after, after Deng Xiaoping was a sort of interregnum after, after Mao died in 76. Um, they've cut, they kind of routinized uh, the uh, uh, succession. So we serve two terms and then we pass over the three big roles that we have. The most important, of course, general secretary of the party. The next most important, chairman of the Central Military Commission. And then the third role, least important, is president, which is just gives you some international uh, you know, um, kudos when you travel and protocol. But uh, those three, you, you uh, let slip to the next person, and then you can quite more quietly slide away. You try to hold on to some influence, and uh, the, the party tries to give you face when you go to big events. So when you have big anniversaries of the party, and uh, I've been at one or two of those uh, in uh, Great Hall of the People, and you see very elderly people up to the age of 100, shuffling onto the stage, they're given their their due face and, and so on. Uh, uh, but, but she is in a kind of different position because of the uh, radical and ambitious nature of his uh, term. You know, he's a, a dice roller and he's pushed things uh, in a way that his predecessors uh, didn't. Now, there are people in the party who wanted she to do that. As I said, they wanted the uh, to, to halt that ebbing of legitimacy that they saw in people's concern about corruption. So she she's gone, but he's gone full blast on many things, not just that. So so he's made many enemies, and uh, he would he feels that if uh, he must feel that. Uh, uh, if and when he steps down from office, the successor may find something uh, he's done or someone in his family have done that will uh, enable the uh, Central Commission for Disciplinary Inspection to go in boots and all. She himself only really reached the top by uh, eliminating his, his what he perceived as his core rival, Bo Shilai. And the Bo family and the Xi family had been at odds. So these are rival families within the communist dynasty. And it's a kind of dynastic rule, hereditary rule, if you like, that you, you have now. And she talks about the importance of having red genes, not that he wears, but that he has inside himself. So he's, done, so he's done a kind of a God, like that scene in The Godfather when Michael takes care of the five families. So that, that's probably what Xi did to get there right like he's yes had, he's had to yes to get so there was it. a yes right there was a there was a public trial so he was lucky that Boshilai's wife Gukai Lai really screwed up big time by uh by getting this uh, British uh sort of comprador killed in a hit and uh, she was implicated and she's jailed uh Boshilai really not so clearly implicated charged with corruption public trial uh, and 
but of course, the sentence was inevitable because it's a political sentence. Uh, uh, there haven't been public trials since because people uh, I, I know who watched the trial and many people in China were fascinated. Uh, people said there was no real evidence adduced that he was personally corrupt. And at the end of it, he was told to stand up and then there were uh, policemen either side who who stood towering down, looking at him. And when I've spoken to Chinese friends, I've said, Bo Shilai, small guy or big guy? Everyone says small guy because everyone remembers that scene. Actually, uh, I've met myself. I've met Bo Shilai when he was uh, mayor of Dalian. And uh, he is about six foot two in the old language. <laughs> So quite a tall person by any standards, but they brought these seven-foot police from somewhere or other. Forced perspective. They yes, for they... pers exactly. So, so <laughs> this is the uh, this the kind of uh, way that the party. It's the very thing. yeah, yeah. It's it, it and it it tends to work for most people. I mean, I can say this: that people can pass uh, pass the truth on word of mouth, but it's not going to. Uh, sink into the to the most people in China who've got more to do with their time, better things probably than to, to follow what's happening politically, and so this uh, so she is in yeah she really needs to keep in power because uh, afterwards what uh, as I say Hu Jintao and Jiang Zemin are leading I think okay kind of lives probably uh, quite constructive circumscribed, quite constrained, but uh, nevertheless luxurious by most the standards of most people in the world. Uh, but for Xi, I don't think he can be sure that he'll be allowed just to sit back and live in uh, the party-consigned apartment in the west of Beijing. I think that uh, he would feel he needs to make special arrangements like staying in power for even even longer. So I wanted to ask you a little bit, Rowan, about this idea of soft power. Uh, so you've written recently that the core goal of the CCP is to control its own own uh, destiny. It already does so within China, where it rules unchallenged, removing all space, all oxygen from any independent or variant thought, organization, uh, business or individual. Uh, it is increasingly also set on making the wider world adapt to it rather than having to adapt itself to international values, laws or trends. Now, uh, the average person sees this happening mostly sort of in, in American entertainment uh, and sport. So we've had cases of prominent American sports stars calling out China, say, uh, on the situation in Hong Kong, only to be silenced by their governing sports body. Uh, this happened a few years ago with the, the, the Houston Rockets coach in the NBA uh, who tweeted solidarity with the people of, of, of Hong Kong. Uh, but we're in this strange state at the moment where uh, where Western corporations and celebrities lecture us about racism and LGBT rights, but then uh, not comment on Hong Kong or the Uyghurs or, or are punished for doing so. Uh, they call this sort of influence soft power, but it seems like a manifestation of the CCP's actual power. Um, is this a purposeful strategy by the CCP? Uh, should we care about this or, or is this all just a bit of a sideshow? Oh, no, it's very, it's very important. Quite a lot of effort goes into this. Um, and, uh, you know, there's a name for it, United Front Work, uh, uh, in order to ensure that uh, people overseas, as I said in those remarks you quoted me saying, um, uh, 
consonant with uh, the way that the party sees itself and, will, uh, and wants everyone to see it. And uh, this is this is it's an odd thing to me that uh, that they that uh, huge talents and uh, artistic skills and the genius of the Chinese people is kept is kept suppressed while the party tr tries to find some forms of attraction. It doesn't really work. It pays a huge amount of money for um, foreign language uh, media broadcasting, for example, CGTN, it's, it's global uh, channel in various languages and so on. And it, 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 uh, uh, it really doesn't resonate, in my view, if China were to allow its uh, uh, give space to its own artists to go into the world and uh, then people will be drawn more, but not. And many of those people, of course, have ha felt they've had to leave China because they cannot work there because their, their creativity is completely cont contained, constrained. So people like Ai Weiwei, famous artist in now in Beijing, I've met him in his place in uh, East is Beijing, and his father, Ai Ching, one of the most famous poets in, in uh, modern times in China. And, you know, uh, there are many others. Ba Yu Tao, really fantastic uh, cartoonist, now living here in Melbourne, and so on. And there are many writers who, who've, uh, who've had to leave in order to uh, express themselves. On the whole, what... The, the, the uh, party really doesn't understand the process of creativity or the arts. They really think that they can build this kind of framework. And so you can think for yourself or you can create within this boundary, within these boundaries. So you can live in a box, but, you know, we'll let you, um, you know, try and paint in, uh, on, on the uh, on the ceiling of the box, but we're not allowing you to see the sky or to... <laughs> try and paint that. So it's really um, a big problem for them. So their answer to that has been economic weaponization. So they've been uh, quite successful in that. They've been using the fact that uh, I'm not sure what percentage of countries in the world, but very high percentage um, have China as their dominant trading partner. Australia is certainly one of those. And, um, and so they have used uh, that as a apparent uh, source of attraction and as a, uh, at first a hidden threat. So in Australia, we've now come to know that it can be quickly turned into a coercive uh, tool, uh, but in the past was used as a um, as a kind of magnetic tool to uh, have people say nice things, to uh, uh, to build a, an environment of uh, positivity. So phrases that the uh, party comes up with, you know, like um, you know, we've suffered a hundred year, a century of foreign humiliation, or the party has uh, uh, brought hundreds of millions of people out of poverty. Both phrases, palpably questionable, but those phrases are endlessly recycled 
here in Australia and in other countries by people who've uh, visited China, have been beneficiaries, uh, or they think they have, of uh, particularly economic largesse. And uh, so that's worked uh, quite well. It's got a kind of, it's built a program of talking points, which are easily replicated. And I, I see that very often in, uh, in Australia, I hear some politicians, some business people and others um, coming up with things. I know almost what they, the next part, phrase is going to be that they come up with because they've heard this from their Chinese interlocutors. And, uh, they, uh, and to be fair, on the Australian side, they believe what they're doing is, uh, is best for Australia. So for us to support uh, the party is actually doing good work for Australia because we benefit from having as much open access to the Chinese market and so on as we possibly can and to be thought of well. Uh, by people in the party. So that's quite a, uh, a common way that it works. I, I, otherwise, apart from economic weaponization, there's not really many tools that uh, the party uh, has at its disposal or uses well. But when you, hear, when you hear any examples of this, it could be an extreme example, you know, like John Senner, that wrestler, from America, you know, doing his groveling apology in, 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 in Mandarin, or it could be, yeah, some a, a politician or, you know, a, a, a beloved ex-prime minister to some, to some people, you know, sort of endlessly talking about, you know, pivoting to Asia or whatever. And, but, but some of the stuff they say, you know, I hear it and I get almost a physical reaction of, of like, uh, listen to what you're saying. Like, like what, what, what like you are being, yeah, to use a, a more recent expression, a Manchurian candidate, you're, you're, you're being a sleeper agent. Like, you know, why are you talking like this? Like, wh wake up. Like, there's got to be a better way to engage with with uh, China than just to read out their their party literature, surely. Oh, well, I, th <laughs> uh, I agree with you entirely. It doesn't really work with me, but it does work with some people. And uh, uh, there's a view also that the more often you say something, the more true it becomes. <laughs> Mm. <laughs> and uh, by if it's spoken by more people, it becomes more true, and more often, more true, and uh, and so on. And we, it will, this will carry on. This is not something the party won't give up on. It's investing a lot in its united front work, and uh, this this will this will continue as long as the uh, party endures. It, it, it is very conscious of history, as I said, and the way that the Qing dynasty fell was in some substantial measure because of the organization. Uh, well, he wasn't really a brilliant organizer, but he was an inspirational figure of Zhongshan, of um, uh, Sun Yat-sen, who's, who's called, called the founder of modern China by pretty well everyone. And uh, he actually lived overseas for quite a long time in all sorts of places, you know, Japan, Hawaii, and so on, uh, and uh, Hong Kong. And um, the party is very well aware that um, there's a large diaspora of ethnically Chinese people and feels there's some vulnerability there as well, that uh, we must make sure that those people 
are loyal and the phrase often used is these are all uh, sons and daughters of the Yellow Emperor. And so even though they may have uh, uh, instead declared loyalty to Australia or to other countries, uh, they're really, they are really Chinese. Um, and we want them to stay loyal with because we wonder what might happen if some of those people were to help organise because they've still got big connections into into the mainland. So that's one of the reasons that they will continue this process um, of trying to ensure that the world is safe for the party. Also, uh, in the sense of economic um, realism, you know, this is a globally interconnected world. They actually really need, for example, semiconductors and uh, semiconductors, uh, the lion's share are made by Taiwanese companies with next in line South Korean. So they, they, they need to get access to all sorts of things. And uh, so uh, we can't afford to just shut off the world. The zero COVID uh, policy has meant almost no one's going in or out of China itself. Uh, but it remains a trading nation and uh, Australian trade has actually increased in, uh, since COVID started. While we're here, I, I just thought I'd ask, you know, you, you've brought up the semiconductors. That, and look, obviously, we want cultural exchange, we want trade, all that comes with a fruitful relationship. Obviously, you know, a lot of us have friends or, or family or whatever, it could be anything in, with our near neighbour. Uh, but is it fair to say that, you know, I don't know how better to put this, that it is not in our national interest to allow them to become a hegemonic power in the way they want to? Oh, yes. Well, of course, it's, it's a, th this is a, the People's Republic uh, has competing values with ours. This is quite, quite clear. I think part of our problem in recognising it is uh, perhaps, perhaps as a result of well-meaning injection of critical studies into at all levels of our um, educational uh, institutions that what Australian values are is, or liberal values or democratic values are, is less understood or and less championed. Uh, and so um, it's harder for us to, to be able to differentiate ourselves from those kind of values that I've outlined that uh, are manifest in, in how the party operates. And the party knows the party knows best what's what's best for all people in China, um, for the um, uh, 1.3 billion people who are not members of the party. They know what's best for them, and they know what's actually they really know what's best for us as well. And that's really a very uh, that's something we, I, in my view, we need to contest. You know, uh, and we also need to speak out for those people who are victims of ethnocentric suppression inside China itself. Mm. Uwego people in Xinjiang uh, and, you know, the, to an extent now we're seeing the loss of uh, languages and so on. Uh, people in Tibet, people in Inner Mongolia, and uh, we've seen what's happened in Hong Kong with uh, what I think is has been a palpable Hong Kong culture. This wasn't just a kind of British veneer uh, 
people there had developed a rather unique and interesting culture of their own, very individualistic culture. And that also is now being contested or suppressed. So it, uh, it's incumbent, I think, on those of us who value, um, who value the, the human person, who value people's uh, um, capacity to uh, express themselves and to uh, live their own lives to speak on behalf of, the, of those people because they can't do that within China. That's not, not permitted. And we've seen in recent days, um, China kind of forego uh, the privilege of saying we, don't, we uh, don't approve in any way of intervention in another country because actually they have uh, refused to criticise the uh, military invasion mm. of Ukraine. So the inconsistency is, is palpable. Yeah, well, that's something I wanted to ask you about, Rowan, is that, you know, considering the, the events of the past week, it would be odd if we didn't we didn't ask you about Ukraine uh, and the invasion from the Chinese perspective. Like, um, what's your, your impression of how the CCP see this conflict? And uh, given that US, uh, you know, has quite a, a, a weak president at the moment, uh, do you think China will will invade Taiwan during a Biden pr presidency? No, I, right. I don't think they will. I'll go back to Taiwan in a second. I think that um, China isn't entirely comfortable about this invasion. Um, it has developed very close relationship with Russia, culminating in the um, no, so-called no limits, 5,000 word pact that was signed by Xi and Putin uh, at the start of the Olympic Winter Olympics in Beijing just recently. Um, and uh, this kind of declared a common authoritarian value set, really, and a new form of international human civilization, whatever. And um, pretty clearly, Xi Jinping was told by Putin that the invasion was lined up, but Putin held it back until the, after the Olympics to be kind to kind to Xi or whatever. Uh, she has called uh, Putin my best, most intimate friend. And uh, <laughs> he has paid a lot of attention to, uh, the, to Russia because, of course, if you're a Communist Party um, leader and the child of a Communist Party leader, you are very interested in what might cause the downfall of, a, of the world's most previously most heralded Communist Party dynasty. So huge research has gone into this. And she figured, and his party has figured what was wrong was they betrayed their inheritance. They criticized the past. They allowed criticisms. They opened, uh, they became liberal. So uh, uh, Glasnost and Perestroika were both mistaken policies of the fiend Gorbachev, and that, um, uh, uh, and then criticizing Lenin and Stalin was appalling thing to do, and so now that she, uh, Putin is kind of um, channeling Vladimir Lenin or some Tsar of the past as well, for, you know, that sits well on she because she's saying, oh, you know, they're kind of getting back in the right space here. <laughs> um, but he, at the same time, you know, Russia is a, a tiny economy, you know, tiny is overputting it, but it's the same 
compared with the population, it's the same size as Australia's. And, um, and so it's not, a, not really a player. It's got a lot of land. And uh, Russia, uh, but the Russia-China has a very storied history of fighting over borders and so on. It's a 4,000 kilometer border that they've got. Russia has by far the biggest embassy in uh, Beijing and so on. So it's, uh, it's, it's a big relationship. And uh, China hasn't got many friends. It was, it's been called by um, uh, an academic friend of mine who's now in Nanjing, uh, Zhu Feng, a, a lonely rising power. It's, it's only treaty partner actually is North Korea. So finding friendship with, with Putin and his Russia has been uh, quite a helpful thing, uh, particularly that they're willing to say the same things uh, in criticism of the West and particularly the United States, which they see as their main adversary. But she is not, she's, uh, China is far more, important it's far more importantly interconnected with the west in economic terms than uh, the putin's russia really it's a far bigger economy 10 times the size so he wants stability particularly this year i said the national party congress he wants everything calm in the lead up to his re-election a war is not calm, so this, yeah, so it doesn't, it doesn't play well for him, and it means that uh, while he's not going to walk away from that commitment of uh, to Russia, it means he he knows that he, there's got, you know, his um, his uh, diplomats have got to speak out of, you know, they've got to speak say contradictory things or now it's going to be difficult so there'll be a lot of blurring of uh, of lines and and so on so this is not a totally happy thing obviously they want they wanted russia to win without fighting would have been best like sun tzu has this sort of thing you know chinese uh, uh war theory you know you win without fighting and mm. i can see that but He's, he looks like he's, uh, Putin's going to be bogged down there. That's really the worst, the worst of uh, options for, for China. But they're not going to walk away from that relationship with, uh, with uh, Putin. And now to talk about Taiwan, some people say, oh, the West, uh, you know, is distracted by what's happening there. So she can uh, get on because it's a parallel thing. You know, Putin is wanting to reassemble the Russian empire. She is wanting to reassemble the Chinese empire. So he'll take out Taiwan. I told you he was a dice roller, but this is a particularly big dice to roll. Hong Kong reassuming, taking Hong Kong is one thing. And it doesn't pain Xi very much to see foreigners leaving Hong Kong or Western companies leaving Hong Kong. It's not really something will keep him up nights. But what would keep him up nights is the prospect of Chinese people, uh, despite all the uh, efforts of the net police and so on, which for now, for a long time, have controlled as far as they can the internet, but still things leak out. 
you know, still at the start of COVID, people started to uh, attack the uh, party for its conduct of the uh, uh, of uh, information about COVID. That came out despite all those security efforts. And what keeps him up at night is the thought the PLA attacks Taiwan. There's lots of visuals of people with Chinese faces uh, fighting PLA soldiers children with Chinese faces lying dead in the street. And this is going to be viewed by uh, millions of our own citizens back in China. What will they say, particularly since they've been told that uh, to a degree, you know, Taiwanese people will would welcome a return. And I don't think um, the uh, PLA command, although, as I said, all those senior people have been replaced, they're now loyal to Xi. I think they're realistic enough to uh, hold back until all the ducks are lined up. Uh, essentially, that means that um, potential foreign support for Taiwan falls away. That's, say, the uh, KMT, the Gomindang, the old sort of sister party of the big sister of the Communist Party, which is surviving in, in Taiwan, is now the chief opposition party that that is kind of returns to um, advocating um, Taiwan be, uh, become part of the People's Republic, which it's had to step away from because there's, it's a losing proposition in any election in Taiwan. If the KMT moves back, if the foreign support for Taiwan ebbs away and uh, it's likely that it can be surrounded blockaded uh, and no one's going to try to run the blockade and people there are going to be tired, exhausted, their energy will uh, be dissipated, then uh, I think that's more likely what, what they will want to wait out for that rather than uh, while Putin's struggling to, to uh, lock down Kiev that they'll fly paratroopers into Taipei. I don't think that's going to happen. Well, um, just mindful of the time, Rowan, but perhaps we can uh, just ask you uh, 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 just something to, to, to wrap it up. You've covered so, we've covered so much ground today, and I wish we, we had another two hours with you. Uh, but uh, basically, our, our generation, you know, was, was apolitical for a very long time, longer than it should have been. Uh, well, I think maybe we had it good for too long. And, um, you know, some of these issues seem overwhelming and complex for some of our, our listeners, even. Um, so what advice would you give to someone who's thinking, you know, why should I care about China or what they're doing even now? Because China is really the the yin to our yang. You know, this is really look on the other side of the coin. This is how we could live our lives. We could live our lives the, the China way or we could live our, our lives uh, the freedom way. And um no, there's, that's a, a debating club at, uh, at a school could uh, set that up as a, as a topic. And pe some people may say, I'd rather live like people in China where we're not wasting time on elections or talking politics, but uh, people who are reasonably intelligent um, are put forward by the party, organise things and uh, make sure that uh, people's lives keep getting better and that uh, we're protected. And so maybe that's, that's all I can, that's what I can hope for. That's, that's my life is gonna be bounded by that. On the other hand, if you're someone who values 
a choice, creativity, freedom, friendships across all sorts of barriers. If you're someone who um, uh, values opportunity against conformity, say, then um, you're going to think, well, what kind of a system is it that will uh, support those values which I uh, which ultimately are the ones that I want for my life. You know, if I have religious beliefs, say, I want to be able to practice that religion in the way that uh, enables me to be sincere about it. In China, if you're a member of the Communist Party, you have to v uh, vow to be atheist. It's not just a matter of, oh, you can't be Buddhist or you can't be Muslim, but you have to actually vow to be atheist, for example. And so I think uh, people need to take cognizance of what matters to them. And then they need to be start to be concerned about ways in which China uh, seeks to influence a society like ours to change, to become more like, more consonant with, with theirs. And uh, uh, I think this is a, a, a debate or an argument that we need to um, we need to take more to heart personally and as a society. And um, I think it ultimately challenges us quite quite substantially. And but I have to con conclude by saying this, of course, is not something about Chinese people, Chinese cultures, Chinese history. Mm. That's something apart. The party has wrapped its tentacles around those marvelous things, and we have to keep them separate. And uh, our terrific Chinese populations coming from many places with many thoughts and many ideas have come here because they actually value those freedoms and opportunities that we have and in many ways understand that much better than, say, Caucasian Australians like myself. Well, Ron, uh, you've been so generous with your time. Uh, it's 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 a fascinating topic, and uh, like John said, we could we could talk for another two hours, but alas, I think our time is up. Uh, John, did you have any final questions? Oh no, I would always just a very selfish one, just quickly, Ron. We always like to know what our guests are reading at the moment. What are you reading? I'm reading a book called Cadre Country by John Fitzgerald. This is the book that people should read about uh, China right now should be reading it okay how china became the chinese communist party there we are john is mm. our greatest sinologist and uh, he writes very accessibly important piece of work john's on our hit list don't you worry about that <laughs> <laughs> but uh yes well look I, once again thank you so much ron it's been it's been just wonderful and look we we're a bit embarrassed because this is a topic that we're really just starting now to to really get deep on and we hope that if we if we have you on again in the future we can we can we can push the, the conversation even even further happy to very happy to do that thank you it's been a great chat thanks ron thanks ron China.